1: Hello, I'm your host Cheryl Jones and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm welcoming Sally Tisdale. Sally's the author of nine books, most recently, Advice for Future Corpses and Those Who Love Them. Her other books include Talk Dirty to Me, Stepping Westward, and Women of the Way, Her collection of essays, Violation, was published in 2015 by Hawthorne Books. Her works appeared in Harper's, Antioch Review, Conjunctions, Three Penny Review, The New Yorker, and Tricycle, among other journals. She's received a number of honors for her work and teaches part-time in the writing program at Portland State University. Welcome, Sally. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm very happy to have you. Um, I really enjoyed your book. And, of course, as you can imagine, I've read many, many, many books about uh, the subject of death and grief and, uh, you know, everything. But I would say that your book <clears throat> uh, was very refreshing to me because the veil was felt entirely off to me. So I really appreciate that. Um, my wife said recently to me, you know, some people you might not know that some people don't want to talk about death as much as you do, and <laughs> so when when I when I encounter someone who seems uh, so willing to, you know, kind of go to the raw place about it,
2: I really appreciate it. So thank you. Oh well, thank you. I've I've always been the person who'll say anything at a dinner table, so. Uh, never occurs to me not to. So <laughs> we'd, we'd, have, out, we'd, yeah. we'd
1: have fun at, at a dinner then. <laughs> yeah. Not everyone is, is such. But um, the other thing I, I really uh, valued was uh, that you come with a very uh, open frame about, uh, for instance, uh, being open-minded about my, what might comprise a good death for someone, because uh, I think mm-hmm. there is sort
2: of a Hollywood version these days, yes? Right, yeah. Well, there, it's I don't know if it's a Hollywood version. It's, an, it's a story we've told ourselves for a long time uh, about what um, good death means. And, you know, my interest is not is not so much in prescribing what a good death looks like as encouraging people to um, imagine what happens if it doesn't go the way we planned and how do we find that good part um, as things change around us. So I tell the story of several deaths that um, are not what would constitute a conventionally agreed-upon good death, either a sudden death or a death that happens in the emergency room or... So on, I think you know I've seen really nice situations in the hospital and really bad ones at home, for instance. And people often absolutely they they imagine that oh I want to die in my own bed at home without really thinking about the practical parts of that and and how many things can go wrong in that situation. So I'm really just encouraging people to um, to go forth toward it with the right attitude, so that whatever happens we can dance with that. We can move with it instead of being constricted by an idea of what it should or quote-unquote should and shouldn't be. If that makes sense? You know, it totally we, we makes sense. Make plans. Absolutely.
1: We Absolutely. make all these
2: plans, and then, and then we have to open our hands because it may not go that way. So, uh, how so, do we take so an true. Attitude? You know, for instance, my wife
1: died at home... With a ton of support, most people would not have the kind of support we had, and I don't know how I would have personally done it without that support. It was hard. Um, well, and people don't even—they
2: don't even stop to think about whether a wheelchair goes through the, the bathroom door, and if it doesn't, what do you do then? You know, and we—we we have busy lives, and not everybody's prepared to provide the, the actual care. Uh, and people don't stop to think about 3 o'clock in the morning. And um, so really I think a good death has to be a death that we meet with some grace and some curiosity no matter what it looks like. To me that's a good death is that we can turn toward it at some point.
1: Absolutely. Uh, when I was reading the part of the book where you were talking about that, uh, the death in my life that was most on my mind was my father's. He died after a fall. Uh, his The connection between his brain and his body uh, severed. So he wasn't mm-hmm. brain dead, but he was not able to move, speak, do anything. And so, of course, he was in the emergency room. They they rushed him there, but it was a beautiful death because uh, I, I'm grateful that I had some experience before that. Um, you uh-huh. know, they put us in a private room. We stayed there for the whole day. We sang. We did all the stuff that I I would want to do, and it was, it was quite, if it had to happen, it was quite beautiful, and that yeah. really taught me something about, not coming with a, an assumption about where or how. So I very much resonate with what you're saying. You
2: know, another another aspect to this good death idea um, is that, you know, as I say in the book, there is actually an official government definition of a good death that has to do with um, regulations for hospice and how Medicare pays for this kind of care. So of course the government has a definition, right? And this definition in includes that family and caregivers are comfortable with the care. And I do, I have an argument there because I've talked to so many people who've said, well, this is, I want such and such, but I think that will bother my family. Or I'd really like it to look like this, but I can't tell anybody because they'll get upset. Um, and I just want to say, how, is there ever a time in our life more when we should be selfish than wow. at this moment when we should, we should do it the way we want um, and not worry about what other people think? So I'm really glad that your father's death was a good one for you, but more so that it'd be a good one for him. And there'll always be someone in the family who maybe just doesn't agree with the circumstances, and that's not the dying person's problem. Well, I do, I
1: do want to put in a big plug for advanced care planning, because it was exactly what he wanted, um, because my mother knew what he wanted. And her yeah. concern and was so that. M- so
2: few yeah. people do that.
1: <clears throat> yeah. And it's, um, you know, her concern was that somehow we wouldn't agree, but everyone
2: agreed because we all knew what he wanted. you know we all knew that and then that sometimes people make the they make the plan but they don't write it down or they write it down but they don't give anybody a copy or or they put it in a file or a safety deposit box and no one knows where it is so I'm I'm all about talk to talk to the people closest to you write it down make sure they can they've seen it you know my son refused to read it but he's got the envelope and he says he'll open it when it's time and my, my two healthcare representatives have copies, and my my church family has a copy, and it's on my desk with a big emergency word on the folder. And, I mean, uh, you do whatever you can so that those who are close to you can make decisions quickly. And maybe maybe end up, as,
1: as someone who's a grief counselor, not end up feeling as if they... Uh, you know, people carry a big weight when they feel like they made the decision. Uh, oh, yeah. and and, and did, was it what they really wanted? And <clears throat> that can be yes. quite uh, that can stick with people for
2: years for a long, long time, to wonder if if you made the right choice. Um, and if it's written down and you're just and but this is also why i I, I always suggest that people not, if possible, not name their closest partner. As their only representative, because it can be very difficult for that person closest to you to make these decisions. They're caught up in very strong emotions, and they have a certain basic conflict of interest at that point um, and need to be the partner, need to be the spouse or the, the family member and not the decision maker. So I've asked my two closest friends to make that decision for me, not my son, because I think it would be very hard very hard on him to make those decisions well and, and that rely on the fact that my close friends are more able and willing to make difficult choices at that time It brings up something interesting
1: you know you said your son has the envelope but he doesn't want to open it and that I found that uh, true of my kids too I've had to push every uh, every conversation you know every please you know you uh, know know-what-I-want kind of thing, um, which is interesting because mm-hmm. both you and I are are in this world, right? <laughs> if uh, but you know, I mean, I suppose they could be rebelling, talk, but my I mother doubt wouldn't it.
2: wouldn't talk to me. I, I'm sorry, I missed that last thing. I, I
1: suppose our kids could be rebelling, but I think more likely they're indicating this age difference that they're, that's something that we're pretty immersed in, they don't want to think about.
2: Yeah, it's just not part of their world. My son's father just, it's, it's interesting to have this conversation now because on Christmas Eve, my son's father had a massive, big heart attack and had open heart surgery the next morning. So our family Christmas did not happen. Um, instead, we were dealing with intensive care units and um, rehab and advanced directives and everything else. So you know it's just not his world. he's not comfortable there. This really shook him, and uh, you know, I felt like he lost twenty years there for a few days uh-huh. <laughs> and 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 yet it opens a door for the next time we have a conversation. We'll be able to talk about this a little more realistically. Um, when it was my mother. You know, I was, a, I was a long-term care nurse at the time with my mom, and I, was, I pushed her too hard to talk about it. I yeah. wanted her to tell me her, her desires and her plans, and she wouldn't because she wasn't ready. And I realized later I was pushing her towards something that she was, you know, she wasn't there yet, and I should have let her be. Um, and it was my need that was being expressed, of course. I, I, did, I couldn't fix anything else, so I could at least work on that, you know. Um, sure. I think, I think we tend to forget that we have our own agendas all the time. No matter what we're doing, we have our own agendas, and we need to remember that when we walk into the room of the dying person. We have We have our own needs that are trying to get met, and it can be hard to separate that. Well, that brings up something
1: interesting about the book, because you did talk both from your perspective as a professional, uh, as a nurse and and your knowledge base, and also talk very personally about the losses that you've had. and I was I was um, I guess refreshed to uh, to to witness you being very real about the personal impact being different from the knowledge that we still, mm-hmm. um, we still have to react because right. something is happening that's so momentous in our lives when it's someone we love and, and care for who's integrated into our lives. Uh, can you talk a bit right. more you know, about that, putting that, you know, how those two go together inside of you, the professional versus kind of your personal experiences? You
2: know, it's, it's interesting. I just did a workshop um, at a conference on, on how to integrate a person with dementia or mental illness into your into your community, um, and somebody said to me during that workshop, they said, "How can you see this tragedy every day and not fall apart?" And you know, to me, that was a silly question. I'm a professional. That's my job. It's my job to to keep things at a distance and manage information and not get lost in my own reactions. That's that's the professional. Um, boundary, and you can't do a good job without it. The surprise with death is that any when it happens to you, you're no longer that professional. Mm-hmm. And, and professionals tend to try very hard to maintain that. We try to be that professional to our loved ones, and it's just, it's a fool's errand. And, and I learned with my mother, you cannot nurse your family. You cannot you cannot do that with your family. That rule you know, against
1: cannot... that is really
2: for good reason, huh? Yeah, I mean <laughs> against yes, treating absolutely. your own well, family. But you know, people still expect you to. Though you know, if if there's a nurse in the room, it doesn't matter if she's the daughter or the wife. People still look to her to to help with the chore, and you have to say no. I'm not that person now. I am the daughter. I am the neighbor. I am you know, and that's who I need to be. So I, I no longer try to to keep those things at bay at all. When I'm a grieving person, I am just totally a grieving person. And it's as though it's never happened before. It's a brand new experience. I have you know, um, it's all fresh every time. Even though you've been there before, you've never exactly been there before.
1: Well, so Lizzie, I, my I don't know. Friend, yeah. I agree my completely mother,
2: with that. me for losing my best friend, um, in any way, um, you you know they are separate losses, and so you you meet them new every time. Uh, completely agree with that. It's like you've
1: traveled before, but you've never been to that town, maybe, or uh, <laughs> but right. I do think, and I think I I notice this in you that what did change for me in uh, in my wife's death is that I now accept that whatever it is I have to do it and i I don't know that I knew that in the same way I had a lot more resistance to whatever I was going to experience than I seem to have now um, when I have losses yeah, is that, that you,
2: true for you well you recognize that you you recognize that you really have no choice and I think, that's a, that's a surprise to many people with grief that um, they have no way to go but forward, and people try to avoid taking those steps. They, they can get stuck just simply because they're afraid to experience the they to feel the feeling. Um, and people will say it. it it feels like it's going to kill me. And my answer to that is it does. It will (laughs) You die when someone you love dies and you are born into a world where that person doesn't exist anymore. And you have to figure out who that new you is. Um, And that's what you fall into is it really does. It is a kind of extinction. The universe you'd lived in is gone and a new one is there. So we have to, we have to, not do halfway you have to go all the way through.
1: I, I've heard that repeated so many times in different interviews and in my own life that really y- you may as well surrender because <laughs> you know there's there's uh, there's only more misery if you don't um, right.
2: So it's, you know, I think it it may be something that people just simply have to discover for themselves um, eventually. And some people, I don't think my father ever completed that journey. uh Uh-huh. After my mother's death, I don't think he ever
1: did. Huh. So we're about to take a break, but I I would like to talk when we get back because that's a very um, kind of... uh, it catches my attention, uh, how you imagine he then went forward. Uh, And I know people do, uh, but, of course, I'm on the end of people then much later coming to therapy and, you know, kind of having to go back uh, to do that process. But maybe that's not the only choice. So let's talk about that a little when we get back. Uh, Listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America and also a link to my novel, An Ocean Between Them, uh, uh, that's about a loss and a changing uh, transformation. And to find Sally Tisdale, you can go to Sally, S-A-L-L-I-E, Tisdale.com. Be back soon.
0: p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
3: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones,
1: Welcome back. This is your host Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Sally Tisdale, the author of Advice for Future Corpus, Corpses and Those Who Love Them. And before the break, Sally, we were you were saying that you we were talking about surrender that grief involves. Um, coming to terms with the fact that there's no way out of it, but that you felt that your father never, never did. And I was very curious about that, what he did kind of instead of that. Um, How did you, how did you um, understand his process without that?
2: Well, and you know, we can never be sure about another person. He lived 15 years after my mom died and um, he was, you know, he had two years to prepare for her death, but he was really completely unprepared when it happened. He um, he had work to do, and he didn't do it. Um, after her death, he really just withdrew. Um, we've all seen this before. He just kind of withdrew from life. Mm. He went about the motions of life, but he wasn't really engaged. He wasn't particularly interested in his grandchildren anymore. He... Um, didn't engage in many projects. He just withdrew and um, it was hard to see, you know, it was hard to watch for sure. Um, But I felt like he was just holding himself still so that he didn't have to take that next step. And I've seen people do that for the rest of their life. And I I think he did too. And so
1: there's that, that, As you would see it, perhaps, is the consequence of not surrendering, that it's very hard to find your way to that new life you're talking about, uh, that kind of metamorphosis. and,
2: And he was a man of a certain age. He'd, you know, been in, seen battle in the South Pacific as a teenager in World War II. I mean, there were, he was not exactly a person conditioned to show their emotions, um, and never had been. So, uh, you know, what kind of support did he get from the people around him? I doubt if he got much support in in dealing with his feelings. Um, it was a time and a generation where men were not really allowed to do that. Um, and there is a kind of stuckness there. Uh-huh. Some, some men and some women can move directly into it and others are just waiting it's almost like if you hold still the ghost won't see you <laughs> uh-huh yeah um and then of course for
1: some people i'm thinking of people in my office for some people the moment comes where that just doesn't work anymore or they right. they come they come to want something that that can't be had under those conditions they long f- to love again, or they, you know, something um, makes it impossible to continue in that way.
2: Right, and then there's there can be a real shattering, a real falling apart. You know, I always laugh when I hear when I hear about people who don't want their their widowed parents to get married again. We were all like, "Dad, would you date somebody, please? <laughs> would you just go yes. get married again." <laughs> we, we were all just. <laughs> Baking I'm with you
1: entirely. Insulin. I, I, I encouraged my mom, and it became clear she was actually considering it, but, but she never found anyone that measured up. <laughs> but that right. was somewhat I, different know. than just ruling it out. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a little paragraph in your book that seems seems relevant to what we're talking about um, about the work of grief and um, and I I just will read it. No one tells you that grief is like a long march in bad weather. You're forgetful and find it hard to make decisions and have no interest in the decisions you're being asked to make. You lose track of time because time changes too shifting and slowing, speeding up, stopping altogether. An hour becomes an elastic, outrageously delicate thing, disappearing or stretching beyond comprehension. One is deranged in the truest sense of the word. Everything Arranged has come apart. I I love that last. Everything arranged has come apart. Um, That that just those words really uh, touched into experiences that I've had with grief for sure.
2: Yeah, and you know, I, I don't think people are are really prepared for the fact that nothing that usually works will work. Um, I just finished reading a, um, the galley of a book on um, the loss of a child that comes out um, next fall. And the, the author says that when you're actively grieving, everything, every activity seems reasonable. Uh, and, and that's kind of the same thing. Everything seems completely unreasonable and completely reasonable at the same time. There's just no, it's not easy to value what you should do What's best to do? Because you can't make those, you can't make those decisions. You don't, you don't have the same standards anymore. Um, so you're, it's like everything's been thrown up in the air and it hasn't fallen yet. And I don't think people are prepared for that. That fact that ordinary life is just not pre- you're not present in an ordinary sense at all. Yes. So when people ask you to do ordinary things like change your clothes or take a shower or eat a meal. It seems crazy. Who cares? <laughs> um, and, and doing something really weird, like riding your bike at three in the morning, seems perfectly reasonable. Um, because all of our value system has been, has been brought to question. Everything we take for granted has been taken away.
1: And I wonder if you think, uh, you know, I'm, now I'm thinking of my, my mother who had a, a great capacity for control in her life uh, you know, for making things happen a certain way. And I think she believed grief would be that way too. She used to say she thought it would be better if she survived my dad. He could never handle it. And mm-hmm. just what you're describing happened to her. And so it was the blow of that experience, but it was also the blow of having thought it wouldn't be like that and trying to... Uh-huh bring it back but she couldn't you know it was very uh it was painful to watch uh her having to let go of that
2: just with this idea of what a good death is you know we have this idea of what it's going to feel like to grieve or or who we will be um and then we have all these very helpful not very skilled people who tell you what your grief is going to be like or you know uh, a friend of mine. Her husband dropped dead of a heart attack while she was out of town, um, completely unseen, you know, completely unexpected. And someone had the gall to tell her that she should grieve for two months, that that's about the right amount of time. You need about two months to get back to normal life. And Oh, my God. <laughs> it, and she was like, she was like, two months? <laughs> it really seems like it's going to take longer. Um, what a so ridiculous idea. Uh, you know, it's not helpful for us to predict to a person what might happen or, you know, what we're more likely to do, which is to prescribe to people what they are going through. Oh, you must be in such and such stage. Um, I see you're bargaining. Um, all of these prescriptive, um, defining statements that we make are not helpful. What's helpful is to say, tell me how it feels you tell me, you're the expert on your own grief. You tell me what's going on. And not to say, oh, that doesn't sound like normal grief. Oh, that phrase, normal grieving. <laughs> Whatever um, that is, huh? Yeah, I, I do tell people that you're going to be surprised, and there's no telling how long it's going to take, and your grief is yours, and everything is except, you know, you can feel anything. You probably will feel everything, and there's no right or wrong way to grieve. The, the there are other... there are held states. You know that I. We need to find non pejorative language to talk about it. When somebody like my father is really kind of stuck, it's not that he's doing it wrong. He just had more to do. Um, but we tend to prescribe. It should take X number of days. It should look like this. It should involve this much crying, um, blah, blah, blah. And it should go in this fashion. I'm sure you see this. People coming in and time. what
1: they should be doing. All the time. And honestly, some of the people that come to see me, I'm thinking of someone right now. It's not really about needing therapy per se. It's the fact that no one is really listening. Uh, well, they just need to, you know. Just there's to just the just story. a lot of things being thrown, but there's no true listening happening.
2: Right, if 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 someone says to me, "How can I help so and so?", that's you know, easily one of the most useful things you can do is just say, "Would you like to tell me some stories? Would you like to tell me what they were like? What are you remembering?" People need, they need to talk and they need to tell the same story several times, maybe many, many times. Maybe hundreds. And yes, yeah, <laughs> and there just are not a lot of opportunities for that. So, so you bring I'll up something sure. there because I, I think
1: many do, people do hesitate, not maybe the people who listen to my show because we talk about this a lot, but people do hesitate to bring up the grief when it's not, uh, you know... when the the person who's grieving is not bringing it up as if they can somehow
2: make make it worse. Um, Well, or that they're going to remind people that they've somehow forgotten. They're going to remind (laughs) Um, people
1: of what they can't forget.
2: (laughs) Yes, exactly. So, um, yeah, I think that, you know, it's just as with dying itself, people are afraid to say to the person who is dying anything about death, Or they'll apologize. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, the dying person knows they're dying. We, um, and they don't want to be put in some category where you can't talk about it. Um, People, I think I'm I'm all for being very transparent about this. Because really, nobody's kidding anybody.
1: And yet, you know, it was circling back to my wife's comment. There are greater or lesser degrees of of comfort. We, uh, you know, I'm sort of whole hog. Like, uh, I like the little app that reminds you five times a day to think about death. You know, <laughs> I, uh-huh. I, for so we, me, it's we cro- we croak we croak exactly. Uh, I I like I I believe the impact of of confronting death in my life is more joyful than sad uh, in, in terms of, you know, freeing my life up. But not everyone believes that or, or wants to do that. Um, so then I think there's a navigation issue for people who are grieving, who, who can't get out of it, as we've said, to find places, uh, create places maybe even where that's welcome. Yes?
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and, and just, to, just to invite each other to talk. Um, it's, it's amazing how we don't do that. And when I've had friends who've lost their parents, you know, they, they will even um, try to minimize it, like, oh, well, you know, she was old. It, it was to be expected. And it's almost like we have to tell each other, you know, it's okay that you're sad about that. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, you don't absolutely. have to apologize. <laughs> um, and you know,
1: it's—I uh, have a friend whose whose mother is 111, and mm-hmm. he's in a bit of a crisis anticipating her death because she's been alive so long. Uh, you know, it's it's hard for him to fathom that the world will be without her. Sometimes it's bigger because the person has lived a long time. The grief is, I mean. Well, uh, I,
2: you know, I sometimes, I, I sometimes have to break the news um, when I'm working, break the news about someone's death to family, and I'm struck by the fact that even if somebody was 99 or 100 and their child that I'm talking to might be 82, they still, they'll start just crying and saying, my mommy died. You know, there is a child in all of us um, that is heartbroken at the loss of the parent but our culture tells us we're not supposed to feel that way. And then the, the second one, and I really want to mention this, is the second feeling may be, oh, thank God it's over. And Absolutely. the relief is so powerful, and people feel like they're not allowed to say that or feel that either. So I, I want to anticipate that and say, of course you feel so sad, and I'm sure you feel some relief. And they're like, oh, is that okay to say? Yes, that's okay. Okay. <laughs>
1: Well, you're, you're kind of referring to something that I think is so, the reason that I'm so happy that there's more conversation about dying in grief is basically because we get to tell each other that that's perfectly okay. Uh, otherwise, we're all in little bubbles trying to figure out, um, is there something weird about me? Um, right. But if, if you've got people around you saying, oh, yeah. Uh, either I felt that or I've met a bunch of people who felt that way. It's, it's
2: so relieving, isn't it? Yes. To just say, um, you know, let me, let me make this normal for you. You might feel all of the following things. You might feel them at the same time. And that's very common. I always want to say to people, oh, this is so common. It's almost universal. You're like everyone else. Um, and it's all right. Nothing to apologize for. And nowhere to rush to. That's,
1: that's another big one I end up saying over and over again. Uh, don't worry about, you've got, you've got to let later take care of itself because that's another pressure right. uh, people yeah. put it's, on themselves to imagine where they're going when there's no way to do that.
2: And that it'll take as long as it takes. And, and jumping steps isn't really possible. We try. Because, it's, you know, it's a it temptation really
1: to try
2: <laughs> it it really hurts and nobody really wants it to be true that it really hurts but it does
1: we're again approaching our second our, our break our second break and uh i'd like to when we come back talk about how you yourself because you talked about specific losses of yours in the book I thought very in a very open um, emotional kind of way and I'd like to hear kind of how you how you actually do that how you actually do invite the feelings uh, I know I had to learn to do that fortunately before my wife died I worked a lot with Stephen Levine who was a very good trainer in that regard but uh, I'm imagining you have some ways that you do that and I think that would be useful for people so let's talk about that when we come back okay and listeners you can go to my website weatheringgrief.com the Good Grief host page you can find Sally Tisdale and her book at Sally Tisdale, tisdale.com back soon <laughs> Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
3: Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making listen to once a nurse always a nurse exploring the world of nursing with host leanne meyer health professionals we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing listen mondays at 1 p.m eastern 10 a.m pacific on voice america health and wellness Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to good grief.
1: Welcome back. I'm here with Sally Tisdale, author of Advice for Future Corpses. And uh, before the break, uh, we, were, we were talking kind of about the importance of feeling the feelings, <clears throat> going towards the grief. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I thought it would be helpful to actually talk about that a little concretely, how you and maybe I do such a thing. Because I I notice that often when I encourage people in that direction, they look pretty blank. Like they, uh, often people haven't, haven't learned how to do that in advance of grief, how to go towards the feelings. Uh, do you right. have... Do you have some thoughts about what can help if you, once you become willing to do that? How to actually
2: do it? Right. Well, and, you know, I think the the simple fact is that it isn't always safe to do that. You're not. I mean, it's not something you want to do in the grocery store if you can avoid it. It's not something you want to do with all of your relatives for the most part. Um, so, number one is is figure out where is it safe to do a little falling apart. And that includes in your own mind telling yourself this is okay. It's okay to fall apart. It's okay to lose control. Um, And most of us, not not a few of us, I think most of us have been taught our whole lives to restrain our emotions. And there's a lot of very good reasons for that. And our culture does not have a ritual for Screaming and crying and grief, and I, you know, I feel jealous of cultures where people fall on the ground and tear out their hair because that's what you want to do. Mm. Um, and we're not, we're not really in the West um, given opportunities for that. So number one, figure out where it's okay, and maybe with whom, and maybe it's alone. Um, I find photographs are very helpful um, to look at the photos and tell the story to yourself of where that was and what that was. Another thing, Cheryl, is that, you know, there's usually something very ordinary associated with a person we've lost. In the, in the book, I talk about doing the laundry. You know, um, no, somebody else might minimize to you why doing the laundry was important, but you know why it was important. You may not be able mm. to articulate it. So doing that activity with that person in the forefront of your mind you know, this is what it was like when we were together. This is what it's like now. There's a way that we have to just kind of break down that social convention that says you need to hold yourself together. You know, I
1: like what you're saying <laughs> in terms of activities, uh, because it's it's not just doing the activities. I mean, grief might catch you unaware doing them, but doing them with the intention of uh, Kind of being with your feelings about the person. For instance, my daughter makes uh, my gra- my mom's apple pie with her sons, and they talk about my mom. You know, there's right. a th- she's bringing. The, it's not just making pie. Um, so I, yeah. I that really resonates for me. Right,
2: and, and I, I think d- um, it's an important to to give each other the message that you need to fall apart and you will be able to put yourself back together because, you know, we've somehow been told that, that we're so fragile that if we fall apart, we, we won't find our way back. But of course we will. This is a very normal, natural thing to do. Humans know how to do this. Um, we just have internal sensors that we've had through our life put into us. And so I also want to tell people, not only is it okay to cry, but you're actually going to stop crying. You actually <laughs> will you'll move on. You, <laughs> you cannot yeah. cry forever. You um, cannot cry forever. But you will You will cry for a while. Um, and when you cry, really cry. Let yourself feel it all the way down in the chest and the stomach and the, you know, with When Carol died, when my best friend died, that was my first experience of really, oh, that's what it means when they say I collapsed. I actually physically collapsed, and I had never experienced that before. My mother died much more slowly, and she was in the hospital, and we were at the bedside. It was, um, I wasn't shattered the same way, but when Carol died, I was shattered. I mean, it was just, I, I have no particular memory of the rest of that day, Um. And it, I'm, I'm lucky that I was in a safe place and that I was able to just fall down, literally fall down. And uh, that taught me to have a lot of respect for how the body knows how to do this, even if our mind tells us not to.
1: Well, that brings up something that we alluded to during, uh, during the break when we were talking, the impact of funerals and memorials. Uh, the the good part is I do think ritual helps us grieve. But the, the maybe troubling part is that there's a lot of pressure to hold it together, um, which right. I find very uh, almost damaging often that this moment that is dedicated to having the feelings of grief, um, there's also a pressure
2: not to have them. And yes. I mean... I- And that's why it can be very useful to have a small private funeral and have a memorial later. Um, The funeral being a place where people can really let it go. Um, A few small close people. Um, And a memorial sometime later when um, you maybe are feeling more composed. But what I was interested in is before long before that, actually, and it's being present with the dead body. Um, how many of us have been denied that experience to be with the body of the person who died? Either if you're lucky you're there at the moment they die, you may be whisked out of the room immediately um, or discouraged from touching the body or helping to care for the body, and I just feel that completely the opposite. You should move toward that Um put your hands on it get some help it's not something that's easy to do alone but i would really like our medical and our nursing professions professionals to understand how important it is for people to be near that body to see it and touch it
1: i i can't i can't echo that strongly enough i know that that The experience I had with my wife's body, she was in our home for 36 hours after she died. Um, We had a wake, you know, um, my kids and I slept in the room that she was in, that her body was in, and honestly, it made death feel safe to me. Mm
2: -hmm. Um, And and that is exactly what, you know, that's exactly what should happen, I think, is that um, there's no hurry. Um, and there's nobody telling you um, there's something wrong with what, what you're doing. Um, I've, I've been able to be with and touch and wash the bodies of a num- number of people that I was close to, um, including a couple people that I was very close to. And um, they're, they're really valuable experiences. I remember, I know it seems odd to say, but I remember them with pleasure. I remember those moments with gratitude. And with pleasure that I was able to see this life all the way through. Um, And it's a kind of honoring, isn't it? Died. Yeah. What?
1: That it's a kind of honoring. At least that's how I felt about it. Uh, I even went and watched my 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 wife's body burn. uh, At Mm -hmm. she got cremated, and I watched that process. And I I think you know I had a two and a half year old at the time, and people say they. They will say things like, "When are they coming back?" and all that kind of thing. My daughter never said that. We, we knew she was dead, <laughs> you know, which I think was valuable right. in terms of grief. Um, there was no we just we went forward from there with our grief. Uh, there was no confusion. Right. Uh, so I ca- I can't echo what you're saying strongly enough.
2: I, I right. completely I agree. Is- it's a rea- it, it makes it real and it also gives you a chance to, to give one last bit of care to a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as I say in the book, when you, when you bathe the body of someone you love, it, you're seeing, you know, we don't see each other naked very often and we may be familiar with only one or two naked bodies in our lives really closely. And then suddenly it's your, it's your, your brother or your cousin or your, um, close friend, and you're seeing them naked in a way you've never seen them before. And what you're seeing is this life. You're seeing the whole life of that person, all these marks and scars and wrinkles that life leaves on us. It changes the way you think about bodies and beauty, um, and, and how we love each other. I think. Yes. It's made it easier for me to love other people.
1: Mm, that's beautiful. And, and also just, um, you know, I, I felt as if I was thanking that body for living so long. She happened to have lived 10 years with a very debilitating uh, form of cancer. And that body had allowed her to be with me for all that time. I felt grateful to her body, you know, for, for uh, for carrying her around all that time. So there was also right. just a thank you in that for the body that she had lived in. Um, that was very well, meaningful to me. I hadn't thought too. about that in, in a long time, but yeah.
2: It's and, and as you note, it's also a reminder that we are not just our bodies and that even though this body is no longer going to be with us, that isn't all there is to a person. Mm-hmm. So there's a, it also reminds you that they live on in another way. Absolutely. Well, I hope I people. Would say to, I would say to listeners, sometimes you have to fight for this right. Um, you may get told you don't, you cannot touch the body. You may not see the body. You cannot watch the cremation. I just see pushback, pushback, pushback because it's just not true. You know, Connecticut does have a law. I will tell you this. I was so indignant when I found this out. Connecticut is the only state that has a law that says a funeral professional has to be involved in moving and washing a body. Which uh-huh. is like the definition of a special interest law, right? Yes. And <laughs> I have a feeling that law gets broken a lot in Connecticut. Um, uh, I'll I'll bet I that- we're
1: we're going to have to we're going to have to close out for today, but if we had another Another hour, I'd want to talk about economics because uh, oh, okay. I know I had to pay a lot of money to watch her cremation. Um, but I agree, we've got to push for those things because they're so meaningful and they help grief so much. I want to I really thank you for being here, Sally. Uh, I hope people will go look for you at sallytisdale.com to, to find your book because I thought it was fantastic. Um, and oh, well, listeners, so next much. week… You're welcome. Next week, I'll have Melissa Lyons, author of I Will Always Love You, A Journey from Grief and Loss to Hope and Love. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief.